Welcome to the Kenmore Church Podcast. We are all about filling hearts and fueling mission. We hope this content builds your heart and mind and equips you to reveal Jesus in this season of your life. And good morning to you and welcome to uh, Church Online. And today I want to introduce a, a sequence of teachings about the whole subject of renewal. And one of the core elements that we've come to over the weeks and months and years of, of looking at how God's people need to have the breath of the Spirit working through their life is understanding what's the end game here? What is renewal? Where, where is this all going with the Christian life? What is God empowering us to do? What does renewal look like? Some say it's, well, it's a charismatic movement or it's a revival or, or whatever else. But, but really, what is really going on? And if we look at it deeply, we'll find that the end game of renewal is Jesus breathing life back into his people. And the fruit of that, the markers of a healthy Christian life are not the things that we used to define them as. We used to define them by outward things. But the core elements of renewal means that God's working in our hearts. And our hearts have their own markers, if you like, of spiritual life and and spiritual growth. And those markers are following of Christ, faith in Christ, and freedom in Christ. Those three elements, our hearts are called to that. If you look through the whole tenet of the New Testament, if you look at the Gospels, and if you try and summarize what it was that Jesus called the disciples to experience, it was faith in him, it was following his word, and it was an experience of freedom through the power of the Holy Spirit. So with this sequence of videos on a series we're calling Renew, we're just going to now and again, we're just going to pop some of these videos in, and we're going to talk about some of those key elements and how we as Christians can experience a new type of renewal in our life. Today, I want to talk about freedom, because freedom is one of those things that we often think about, but we don't give words to, and we don't often talk about it. We're talking about freedom from our old nature, freedom from sin. It's not a popular topic. We don't like to get together and discuss where we're falling short all the time. And yet it's something that's on our mind a lot. It's something that we think about a lot because we're very conscious with hearts that are softened by the Holy Spirit. We're aware of the fragmenting of that relationship because we're just so aware of how far and how routinely we fall short. We find that temptation comes and we, we too often just submit to it. And... Uh, you know, we think, what, what's wrong with us? Why do we keep on sinning? Is it inevitable that this happens in my life or is there a potential for us to break through that? Well, let's have a look at that today. And I want to unpack this starting with uh, the writings of James because he talks about it. And uh, what he's really saying there, if we could sum up that message alone, is the answer to the question of why do we keep sinning? His answer would be, well, because you want to. It's, it sums it up like that. It's like, it's, well, it's your desire. It's, it's, it's within you. You don't have to, but there's, there's a win there. There's some reason why we prefer in that moment in time to think, to act, to do that which is against God's best. Let's see how he unwraps this in James 1, 13 to 15. He says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by... by dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So you can see a pathway there where it begins with temptation, which we all experience, we all receive temptation, and finally it ends up in what James describes as death, an atrophy of the soul, it's separation, it's brokenness, all those sorts of things. So he begins with temptation. He says, we are dragged away by our own evil desires. So he's saying, we really need to own that. Even though Paul was very clear in Romans 8 that we we have no longer an obligation to sin, 
James is saying there that we still get dragged away when we allow that old nature to rear its head again. And when temptation comes, we lean into that in a way that we probably shouldn't. And so we have our flesh and our thoughts are seeking resolution. What's happening there is that temptation brings to us uh, an option to find some sort of win, some sort of pleasure, some sort of gratification from doing something that falls short of what God has said is his best for us, for life. And so pain within us seeks pleasure or um, we're looking for a gain that comes out of it. In that moment, we say, no, it's more valuable to me right now to sin rather than go God's way. And so he goes on and says that then there, there is sin comes from that choice. It's an, a thought. It's an action. It's a falling short of God's best. And we do that because we believe that's our win for that moment. That ultimately then leads down the pathway to death. How do we describe death? It could be described as, uh, you know, a sense of separation from God. It's a sense of inner shame and condemnation within us that atrophies our soul. It's that broken intimacy with God. It's, it's as simple as all the neural pathways in our brain are getting rewired. Every time we fire a sinful action, it sort of, sort of wires our neural pathways to do it again. It just gets easier and easier and easier. It's all the broken relationships. It's the collateral damage of a life that falls short of God's best for us. But Scripture says we have a choice. And the choice is there that we don't have to be obliged to that sinful nature. And it seems impossible to us. We think, how can that possibly be? Uh, and it highlights a difference in Scripture between those who are tempted and slip into sin and those who are slaves to sin. And it does draw a very clear difference there because we're all going to be tempted, as James says, and we're all occasionally going to be slipping into sin. Uh, we don't plan it in advance. We don't think ahead and go, in two hours' time, I'm going to do something wrong. We just we slip into it. It's like slipping on a slippery pathway and we go, ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I should have been more careful. And it draws a line there between that sort of slippage and uh, a slavery, a bondage to sin. And so Scripture is very clear. We aren't slaves to sin. We don't have to be. We can choose to be. And yet we are all going to slip occasionally into sin. Romans 6.16, Paul says, Do you not know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one that you're obeying? And he's saying there that if we allow ourselves to submit to our old nature, it's like a slave driver cracking the whip. And in the end, the slave, as they interact with a slave driver, forgets to question anymore. They just feel, no, I have no choice here. And as soon as they hear the crack of that whip, they find themselves falling into sin. There's no serious attempt to stop. And that's what Paul is saying here is a slavery to sin. But a journey is available to us to a much freer life. And that's what this morning is all about. Romans 8, 5, Paul says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. He goes on in verse 12, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So Paul highlights there that the, uh, the pivot point between the old nature and the new is the human mind. If the mind sets itself one way or the other, then that determines which way we go. Now, the inference there could be that the mind has all the strength, but of course it doesn't. But all the mind does is set itself to sort of catch the wind of either the spirit or the evil one who would tempt us into our other fleshy desires. It says in Romans 7, 7 to 8, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the covenant, produced in me every kind of coveting. And you can see what he's saying there. He said, if, I, if it wasn't in my mind, if I hadn't read the law where it says don't do that, I literally wouldn't have thought of doing it. And it's almost like, wow, I never even thought about that. Let's go down that path. And you can start to see the power of the human mind is drawn to uh, something where desire begins to grow in us, particularly desire that grows from either the carnal nature or the spiritual nature. But it's ours to steward that nature. And so Paul brings out in, uh, in what, 2 Corinthians 3 that there's a better way. There's a way to actually transform ourselves by uh, turning our mind to that which is better. Let's see what he says in 2 Corinthians 3.17. It says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. So he's saying there, we are transformed as we contemplate his glory. So as we turn our gaze away from the old nature and turn our gaze onto him, something happens in that process that transforms us. He says, as we begin to ruminate on him, contemplate God, he's saying. And what does that contemplation mean? It really, it's like ruminating. It's like a cow chewing on the cud over and over and over. It's ruminating on the goodness of God. It's, it's beholding his glory. It's reminding ourselves of how good he is, of his nature, of the freedom that he offers us, of the power that he has in our life, of the calling that he has upon our life. And we contemplate the awesomeness of God. And as we do that, he's saying, there's some sort of exchange going on. There's something happening in our hearts where as we behold him, we behold him and become like him. So we become who we behold. And so as we gaze upon him, instead of gazing upon the desires of the flesh, he's saying that act, not only does it uh, enable us to live from the spirit, it says now, now we become more like him. We become that which we behold. An incredibly powerful concept. It's a, a life-turning way to look at scripture and, and the power of the spirit for the New Testament believer. And so how do we contemplate? This is a marvellous exercise for all of us to grow. And you do it in different ways in different seasons of your life. For some of us, it may be as simple as walking through nature and just thinking about the greatness of God who created it. For others, uh, it might be reading scripture. For others, it's journaling and praying. But I've found uh, if there's one consistent and, and most effective way to uh, behold the glory of God, to contemplate the glory of God, it's through the act of worship where we declare his praises. It's almost like we come into alignment with the forces of heaven that are all declaring with one voice the holiness, the greatness, the magnitude of our God. And I've found in my own life that every uh, before every upgrade that I've received, if I can use those terms, into a new, uh, a new door of calling or a new capacity to live God's way. And there's been a number of marked seasons in my life that way. Preceding each one of those has been a call to worship God in a new and more consistent and deeper way. And the calling into that has not come with, if you do this, God's going to do that. It's just, no, it's just a sense that God was just calling into a deeper form of worship. And what it was in the end was a new way, a new depth, a new uh, passion, a new earnestness to contemplate the glory of God. And through that contemplation, you're being transformed, uh, transformed from glory to glory. There's a great um, set of stories in the, um, the old Greek mythology, uh, particularly if you've read Homer's Odyssey. And there's a tale of temptation. There's a tale of uh, these two ways that we can think that illustrates it so well and it's, and it's a lot of use for us today as well. 
The hero in the story is a man called Odysseus. And he's on a journey. He's been in the Trojan Wars and he's on his way home from the Trojan Wars. And he's been warned that on the way home, if you're sailing, you're going to go past an island. And on this island, there are three uh, beings called sirens. These sirens were uh, half bird and, and half woman, and they would sing a song that was so uh, seductive, so entrancing, that anyone who heard the song would be drawn to it. But it was all a trap because as the sailors come closer to their island, they're dashed on the rocks. And so these sirens were well known in the region. And so as the, the Odyssey works out, uh, Odysseus wants to hear them, but he doesn't want to be dashed because he's been pre-warned. And so what he does, he tries to play a trick on the whole game. And he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to plug up with wax all the, uh, the crew on my boat and I'm going to get them to, to row past. And, but I'm going to leave my own ears unstopped, but I'm going to have them tie, tie me to the mast hand and foot with, with, with ropes that can't be undone. So, and tell them no matter what I do, no matter what I say, don't let me loose. Don't let me loose. So as they came close to the island, here they come and the sirens begin to sing. And the sailors can't hear it. They're just, they're just rowing away. But they're watching Odysseus. And he starts to squirm because he hears this seductive song. And it, it takes over his mind. He just wants to get there no matter what. So he starts screaming at the sailors, let me loose, let me loose. But they can't hear him. So in his desperation, he starts pulling at the ropes and, and bleeding and, and straining and, and injuring himself. And by the time they finally do get past the island, he just collapses, completely exhausted. He's, he's won the day, if you could put it that way, but he's, he's done. You know, the, the cost of hearing those songs nearly did him in just in the effort of trying to avoid it. But the interesting thing comes up in that, that there's another uh, great story in Greek myth about another sailor called Orpheus. And Orpheus, as opposed to Odysseus, he, he went about it a whole different way. He too sailed past the island of the Sirens. But Orpheus was known as a great musician and poet. And it was rumoured that uh, he was so... Um, such perfection in what he did that he was such a fine artist with his musician and poetry that even the stones and the trees would dance around him as he played on his harp and, and recited his poetry. So as he was going past, uh, he'd been warned too about the sirens, but he just picked up his instrument and began to play. He began to play loud and clear. He didn't block the, uh, the ears of those on the boat with him. He outsang the sirens. His song was so loud and so powerful, no one could hear, nobody wanted to hear the sound of the sirens. And they sailed by unscathed. They weren't tempted and no harm became upon them. Worship is like that for us. Worship is freedom's song for the believer. This is our pathway into contemplating the glory of God's presence. We outsing the sirens in our life. We outsing the desires, the temptations that want to pull us a certain way. We sing the song of God. We sing about his perfection and his awesomeness. And we become deaf to the lesser things in our life. When we sing this song, you know, it's almost like we would do anything to protect that relationship. And the idea of, of anything lesser seems so petty now. We think, no, I've got this. Why would I threaten that because of that? So worship can transform you. It's our way of contemplating God's glory. I've got one story that's my favourite, and it's, it's becoming a little bit famous around the place these days because I tell it so often, but it's a story of my own um, out-singing of the sirens, if you can put it that way. And uh, it was when I was a young man and I'm studying engineering, and uh, I was studying uh, to the point where I also had to work um, part-time to, to fund uh, living as a bachelor. And, uh, and so the, 
I found myself in this job that I, it, I had to revert to. There was not a lot of employment in the region. So I had to work in this chicken factory. And in this chicken factory, the chickens would come in, 30,000 of them a day in crates, and they would come out in trucks, uh, shrink-wrapped in plastic and frozen. It was the, the whole deal, full service arrangement. And uh, not a great place to work. In fact, at the time, because it was high summer when I started working there, it reminded me of Dante's Inferno, if you've seen the, uh, the medieval picture of that where he has these seven circles of hell. And I used to say this chicken factory was like the seven circles of hell because it had, it had these seven areas in there where you had to process the chickens in different, uh, different stages of sort of, you know, what they were going through, the poor things. And so there I was in this chicken factory and they put me in this one circle, which was called the cage. And in the cage, there was just room enough for five men to stand up side by side, uh, literally in a cage because uh, the chickens would come in in their crates and they couldn't be allowed to get away. The job there was to get them out of the crates. These are cranky uh, chickens full of life. You've got to reach in, grab the chickens, grab them by the leg and then hang them up by a chain wire conveyor that was above our heads. So not a, not a great experience for the chickens. And so obviously the chickens are, there's, there's hot streaming manure coming out all over all of us in the, in the cage. And, and so we have glasses, but they get uh, clogged up within a few minutes. And it's just, it's like one of Dante's circles of hell. It's just a terrible experience. But 30,000 chickens a day had to go through that. And I just realized as a, as a young man and a, and a Christian guy, if I'm going to survive this, something needs to happen in my heart. I didn't know what else to do. I was stuck there. I, just, I couldn't quit. Uh, the, the honor in me said I can't resign a job just because it's too hard. So I thought the only thing I can do is literally to praise God. I didn't know what else to do in that space. And so I would uh, just silently just begin to worship God. And, and um, as the days went by, uh, I found that as I was worshipping that my, my heart grew warm and uh, warmer than the surroundings around me, if you like, overcomingly warm. And uh, so I started to sing out loud, just quietly at first, but, but then a bit louder. And I found out that most of the guys beside me, they were big islanders and, and they were Christians too, and they never thought to worship in the middle of the cage. So we all started worshipping together. And we, just, we sang and we just sang and we sang our way through Dante's circle of hell. And uh, it got to the point though where... It didn't matter anymore. We were so uh, thrilled to be able to worship together and just consider God all day right in that space. We began to overcome. We got bigger than the cage. And so we, we literally became free in the midst of the binds of that place. It was a terrible environment. It didn't get any less terrible, but we got bigger inside. We, we outsang the sirens in that sense and we overcame. And it was such an incredible experience of freedom. It was genuine. It was real. I was already free long before I was offered a better position of employment somewhere else that really suited and had a lot more pay about it. I was already free inside because I'd learned to become free by contemplating the Lord's glory. And that same experience has happened to me a number of times through life in, in similar level of magnitude as well. But it's, it's layer upon layer, glory upon glory. But I just say that to encourage that worship holds the key to so much of the breakthrough in our life. You know, and I never, I never do this. I, I, I never promise a cure-all formula for your life that if you do this, life's going to go perfectly for you because it just doesn't happen. Uh, I never say things are going to go, always going to go well for you uh, if you do this or that with God. It's not a transactional arrangement. I never say to pray a certain way and God's going to heal you. And I certainly never say things like give your money to church and you're going to end up rich. I don't like those sorts of formulas. But I will say this. Worship does something. It's unique. And it's almost universal because a heart that focuses on the wonder of God is not drawn to sin anywhere near 
as much. And a, a voice that comes from our heart that's consistent in thanks um, skims more frequently away from the vortex of depression and sadness. A heart that welcomes the Holy Spirit to speak and to work just sees more power at work in their life. And so a worshipping heart catalyzes something in the heavenlies. It breaks our heart free. Psalm 104, Psalm 100 verse 4 says, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I'll literally enter his gates. I'll come into his presence with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is like the gateway into the presence of God. And where the presence of God is, there is peace, there is freedom, there is joy, there is everything we need. And thanksgiving and praise are the entryway into that. We don't do that because God has an ego that needs stroking. We don't do it because he needs to be reminded of how good he is. We worship because we need to worship. We need to remember. We are the ones who need to be set free. We worship God and through the breakthrough of contemplating his glory, we experience freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, Paul says, there is freedom. And we gain that freedom by contemplating his glory. Let's join together now in communion. The first step of thankfulness is really a remembrance. It's remembering what God has done. It's remembering who he is. And when we remember all that God's done for us, it dissolves those lingering disappointments in our life. It resets the expectations that we have on him because we're remembering what he's already done. And it, and it dissolves those tensions that so often destroy relationships, those expectations that we place on people that we sometimes uh, feel aren't met. And so when we come to communion, what we're doing is remembering. We're remembering with thanks. We're remembering with praise. And by doing that, it just gets our heart again aligned with him. And as we drink the bread and the juice, what we're doing is remembering what he did on the cross. His body was broken, represented by the bread. His blood was poured out, represented by the wine. He did them in our place. We could not do that for ourselves. Nothing we could do was worthy of paying the price that had to be paid. It had to be paid by someone who was perfect. So it had to be God had to be human because it was man's uh, sin that needed to be paid for. And so Jesus came and died for us. How good is that, that we get a chance to place our faith in Christ, in what he did on the cross. And so when we get to heaven's doors, we can say, I'm with him. I'm, I'm, I'm associating myself with what Jesus done. I'm here because of what he did. I've placed my faith in that, not on any right of my own works to do it by myself. So let's eat and drink together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is just so much of you to remember. There's so much worthiness in who you are and what you've done in our life. The, all the books in the world could not contain the things that you've done. And more than that, all the facets of who you are. So we bless you today. We thank you for the cross and all that means to us and all that's going to mean to us for our life to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, bless you this morning. It's been great sharing with you. Don't forget to uh, log into the website and get the application content, the questions for discussion. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again next week.